I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Pat was a hoarder, and he was also um, the world's greatest procrastinator. We have an attic upstairs in our house. It's 30 feet long and probably about five feet wide. And there was no passageway to the back of it. It was just stuffed with stuff from the front to the back. So if there was something you needed at the back, you couldn't access it without taking everything out. For decades, Joanne Pickett and her husband, Pat Maloney, lived in Arden, a leafy little village tucked between lakes in southern Ontario. The house is old, creaky, and welcoming, with wooden floorboards and a winding staircase leading up through the bedrooms to the attic. Joanne still lives there, but Pat passed away a few years ago. He was sick for a long time before that. And his last years with Joanne were some of the best of their marriage. Oh, we became the best of friends. We, uh, we, we just spent such great time together that we took road trips. We talked a lot. We, we listened to music. We did all of the things that we hadn't taken the time to do before. Pat and Joanne were well-suited to each other, both creative, both good with their hands. Joanne is a potter. She makes thick, satisfying earthenware in a workshop Pat built for her. He was a carpenter. After his death, after she'd taken some time, Joanne was ready to finally sift through everything Pat had left behind in the attic to clean it up. And that's when she found it, the part of Pat's life he'd hidden away for nearly 30 years. I'm Macy Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. Today, we've got two stories about men who left behind records of themselves that their families only discovered years after their deaths. Coming up, Rignam Wongkong's dad fled Tibet after the Chinese occupation in the 1950s. And he left a diary, more like a memoir. But until recently, Rignam was not prepared to read it. I think there's a subconscious reason for why I didn't why I didn't want to read the memoir. It would be too much for me to handle, especially as a young teenager. Now that I'm 27 years old, I feel I'm at a better stage in my life and maybe I've processed the death better. But first, Joanne Pickett and her husband Pat's secret life. This story was originally broadcast in November of 2018. CBC Ottawa producer Jessa Runciman We'll take it from here. Joanne Pickett climbs the stairs of her old country house to the place where she made the discovery. So this is the attic, and this half of the attic was packed from side to side, from floor to ceiling, solid stuff. I found a ton of equipment Just a ton of stuff. Tape recorders, tapes. I had no idea what was in here. 
Joanne hasn't been up to the attic in years, and now here she is with dozens upon dozens of tapes. She doesn't have a clue what to do with them, but she has a neighbor who might. My name is Jonas Bonetta, and I am a musician. Jonas has a band called Evening Hymns, and he makes music under his own name, too. This is some of his music playing now. He also runs a recording studio on his property. So I called Jonas and um, told him what I had found and whether he knew anything about it. She's like, you know, can you just, like, help me navigate this a little bit? Like, look through what we have and what it is and... And he said he would be right over. So he came over and he... Just kind of started going through all the boxes and then found all of these tapes of Pat's. Like, I mean, it's in mint condition. Whenever I get a piece of gear, it's like I rip the box open and I, like, start using it and whatever happens to the box or whatever is anybody's guess. But this guy kept, like, the original plastic bag. Oh, it's heavy. When I saw the machines and this, the shape they were in, I was just like, oh, this is really interesting. Let's use these machines to digitize all the tapes. I was interested in being able to like give her recordings of this person she spent a huge portion of her life with, because I think anybody would want that. So yeah, this one is all the lyrics. So this is five songs. It says, all lyrics by Pat Maloney, all music by Pat Maloney and Gary Broderick, except Come Again by Maloney. Yeah, keep on going. Okay. She said all things come to those who wait. She said, grab it something, cause it's getting late. Nothing makes it, cause you're just faking away. Knock out the lies and it leaves you with nothing to say. This is the first tape I put on, actually, which I was like, oh, my God. Because it, I mean, it's instantly kind of nostalgic sounding. I think because it was recorded on tape, too. It's like there's that quality. It sounds like warm. And This is his uh, list of gear for a recording session. So it says, like, mics, rent four SM57s with stands, UD35 baffles, mattress, question mark, sleeping bags, styrofoam, rugs, question mark. It's pretty meticulous, which is, you know doing something archival like this is kind of amazing. Feed various pre-recorded tracks through the synthy filters and ring modulator, etc. Check mark beside it. This is amazing. This is, I think, the thing that makes me the most upset that I didn't really get a chance to talk music with him. Because it's like, I'm making weird stuff like this. I must have told him I was a musician, I guess, but I didn't know that he was. That's the part that I'm like, oh, man, 
A guy that lives 10 minutes away from me was making this kind of stuff in the 70s. This is this, like the reissues I'm buying on vinyl now, you know? That bums me out. Jonas might not have known this side of Pat, but Joanne did. It's the side she knew first, before Pat was a carpenter, and long before he built the pottery studio that she spends most of her time in. Today, she's trimming pots, surrounded by buckets of glaze and shelves of handmade dishes ready for the kiln. I used to say that Pat was the only person I would let handle my pots. If he dropped them, I could beat him up. I couldn't. <laughs> no, I just trusted him. They first met in Toronto, more than 40 years ago. Pat and I met in a record factory where we both worked in Toronto, Quality Records in Scarborough. He was a mechanic and I was quality control. So I sat in a booth with a set of headphones and listened to music all night long. We both had tickets to Paris in our pockets and we were saving a bit of money to go overseas. It was just a bit of a coincidence that when we met, we both had the same plan. He was just an uber-smart guy, very interesting. He's a fine musician. He had a friend who was a sitar player, so they did this kind of crossover Indian music. He played folk music with a certain group of people and jazz, and they traveled around a little bit too, did gigs. When I first knew Pat, when we were like totally first in love, I asked him to choose between his flute and me. Just kidding, right? And he chose the flute. He loved his instrument. He loved playing music. Despite playing second fiddle to a flute, Joanne stuck with Pat. And after a few years, they packed up their life in the city and moved to cottage country, up Highway 7, to the town Joanne grew up in, Arden. She had her pottery, and Pat became a carpenter. But what didn't make the move, with all the boxes and suitcases, was Pat's music making. When it came to picking up the flute or recording songs, Joanne says that side of him just sort of went away. I often asked him about his flute. After he started earning his living as a carpenter, your fingers get tough and calloused, and that just didn't work playing the flute. So when the children came along, my son is a musician, he played the fiddle. And I took up piano, but Pat wasn't really being a musician here at all. He really put his music behind him as far as recording music. And life went on. It wasn't something Pat talked about a whole lot. I should say here, Pat was a complicated guy. He was very gruff. Um, I think he had some inner turmoil. He experienced some bad stuff when he was a little guy going to Catholic school. And he, he acknowledged the fact that he was difficult. And he attributed a lot of it to the stress that he was experiencing in his job. He, he was a perfectionist, and he had a real reputation around here for being the slowest carpenter on earth. Everything had to be perfect. He built a house like he was building a cabinet. And while Pat was busy building, that flute of his stayed in a cabinet in the kitchen, untouched. His kids didn't hear him play it, or any music at all. I didn't ever hear him play the flute in person. Luke Maloney is Pat's son. 
I think he would try to play and then get frustrated. Like I I'd pull it out of the cupboard and force him to like play a couple notes, but that's, that's it wouldn't last more than a few seconds. He put it away. Playing music was something he was sheepish about um, in the time that I was around. Let's go. Cool. Oh, we got a little bit of Pat flute coming up here. Through Pat's tapes, it's clear he was talented and that he was having fun. He was recording popular Toronto folk acts, touring in a jazzy rock band called Nighthawk, and making experimental music on synthesizers from the Royal Conservatory. Which leads Jonas to ask, why would he just stop and put it all away? I mean, you can speculate, like, so much, you know. He's made these recordings that are challenging and bizarre and abstract he was like clearly like exploring it's strange that he never felt the the need to get it out again and without pat around to ask jonas turns to the tapes pat's meticulous notes list everyone he played with or who helped with a recording session maybe one of those people who knew him back then will have some insight a lot of this Jim Pet guy, a lot of hacking off radio, must be a recording from the radio. They'll seem to be his buddies or something like that. A couple of Google searches and bingo. Jim Pet, although it says on his website that he plays as the James Petria, so I don't know if he goes as Jim or James, but anyways, yeah, found his email. And he worked with Pat on a whole bunch of recordings. Like, there's probably half a dozen tapes that have, actually more than that, that have Jim's name on them, so... I think they're old buddies from the mid-70s. So we should reach out to him and see if we can't track him down. Hello, Jonas. Hey, Jim. There doesn't seem to be any delay, which is good. Jim Pett is working as a music director on a cruise ship. He calls Jonas from the Pacific, somewhere off the coast of Costa Rica. Uh, pleased to meet you. It's a, such a mystery for me going through these tapes and being like, what are these songs? When were they recorded? What was his relationship? Like, we've, I've had all these questions, so it's so so nice to hear a voice on the other line that can answer some of them. The biggest image of him would be sitting and just chatting, you know, uh, once in a while getting up and suddenly going to the vibraphone and playing, and I pick up my guitar, and the music comes, we wait for it until it arrives. And ah, now we can hear it, and then we play it. And that's very personal, and it's very, almost with him, insular. He was very, a very private guy, and I'm, I'm glad to have spent some time with him. I know he was completely open with me. He was living in a certain space, and not everyone could see that. And sometimes people who realize that they see something that others don't, are impatient with the rest of the world. So he would succumb to that sometimes, I think. Jonas asks Jim why he thinks Pat might have stopped recording music, and he brings up an impromptu visit he made years before Pat got sick. Jim was driving down the highway between Toronto and Ottawa and stopped in at the house. He seemed happy, 
I wanted to play. And he said, I haven't played for years. And he went and got the flute from a, an area where clearly it had been packed away. And we went in a room privately and we played. Not for long. It wasn't gigantically successful. It marked the end of something, really. I understood that he had moved on. I don't know why he put it away. I I said, no, man, don't, don't. How can you do that? You know? How can you give up? Because I, he just seemed, he was inspiring, you see. So for a guy to quit, that bothered me, actually. He, he had shut the door. You know, I let him know that he was so important in my development. And no, 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 no. It was probably nine years later after that that he contacted me. And that's when he told me that he was ill again. That was the last time Jim spoke to Pat before he died. And then I got your email. I thought, ooh, here's a guy who's seminal in my music development, and I'm still playing. So <laughs> somehow a part of him is still going musically as well. As long as I keep playing, some of me is him, I'm sure. doesn't seem like he stopped because he was unhappy with I mean at least we don't seem to hear that from anyone no one's being like oh he just hated music so he stopped that's the part that confuses me because I could see if somebody like recorded some songs back in the day and then like was like yeah whatever I became a carpenter and moved the country and put it away that's one thing but because he was like invested in, in the intellectual side of music I find it like so bizarre that he would just stop making recordings and that I mean that Luke and them don't know that Pat you might be hearing something in Jonas's voice here he really cares about this it's because when he talks about what Pat left behind and how his family fits into that picture he can relate yeah I lost my dad in 2009 and uh stupid enough i i just never made recordings of him it would have been really cool to to have like just recordings of his voice if i still had my dad here i don't know if i would have made that connection i think instantly i was like oh man we need to transfer these so everybody has these things because this person's not around anymore i mean what a gift you know jonas hopes pat's family will see it that way too so he invites them over to listen he cues up a few of pat's tapes but before he even presses play Joanne just needs a minute. So I'm beyond nervous and freaked out. Oh, oh dear. don't be. Oh, no. don't be. It's like all day. I, like, oh. I think this will be very emotional for me. <laughs> of course, the last time I heard these tunes was 40 years ago. I can't talk. <laughs> As for Luke, he isn't sure that hearing the tapes will have much impact at all. My best conversations were with my dad. That's something I really miss about him a lot. We spent a lot of time on the phone. We're pretty good buddies. So, But um, playing music, that's just not really something I associate. It was, it was a part of him that I didn't know at all. So I question whether or not I'll even, this will even mean anything to me, really. Despite those doubts, Luke, his partner Bridget, and Joanne sit together on the couch. 
and Jonas presses play. Thinking about you and it crosses my mind that you were the kind of girl who could make her own mind. Reason to find the thoughts left behind come again. I've never heard this yeah. tune before. We lived very separate lives, obviously. <laughs> it's something I'd have to digest a little bit more, just because it's the first time I've heard it. So um, I'd have to sit on, sit with it for a little while, and and really consider what he was thinking and what he um, what he intended. I love I love that one. Um, okay, so then we'll get into the weird the weird stuff. The weird experimental stuff. Oh, yes. I remember it. It's, it's a bunch of sound. It's very, very nice. <laughs> Nothing you can really top your toe to, though, right? I love it. Jonas loves it. Does that make, does that make any sense? No, no. I, uh, like, can you like connect he, your dad to making that type of music at all? Sure. Oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. He was always a rebel, and that seems to be reflected in his music as well. I, I guess he liked to be a challenge in all aspects. So. Well, he was very um, proud of this music. Yeah, he entered it in a CBC competition back in the day. Nighthawk. Sounds nice. Is this Nighthawk? Yeah. Oh, cool. He was the flute player in this band. And obviously he recorded them. There's a range of emotions in the room. Luke's eyes are facing his lap, where Bridget is holding his hand. Joanne sits straight up on the couch. You can tell she's listening really carefully. I, re- I think I remember this. This is probably the first tape he made on the TIAC. And it was just, just checking it out, seeing what it will do. Okay, hit it again from the top, bye. But life in the bloodstream? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you don't believe that this whole universe It's a little overwhelming, to tell you the truth. And it's, as you can hear, it's very emotional for me. When you can hear the musicians and talking in the background, it does kind of bring him back to life. I feel like I'm going to turn around and see him. So, it, yeah. And and very regretful that this has tr- all turned up after his death. It's a gift for us, but it would have been a greater gift had we discovered it sooner, and maybe it could have been part of his life for the last years. Do you think he would have been interested in that? I think he absolutely would have been. It's not like he forgot that it was there. And I don't know what his intention was. Like, what was he? What was he saving it for? Yeah. 
This is when Luke's girlfriend, Bridget, speaks up. One of the things that we learned about Pat, especially near the end, was that legacy did mean something to him. And when he passed, he I don't think he wanted to be forgotten. So I think the fact that, that this is happening and that we have people listening to his music, I think it would be very meaningful to him. So it's nice that we can kind of give this to him. He'd be very, very pleased. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've probably seen the box of tapes that's like we've listened to maybe 1% of the stuff that's really? there. After Pat's family leaves, Jonas stays in the studio for a while, putting away the tapes and the tape machines. If I could ever get that kind of stuff from my dad, like I have like some writing that he did at the end of his life when he couldn't really write. Like, he physically couldn't actually do it. Like you can't read it. Like, it just looks, looks like a, a kid scribbles. This is the day before he died. He asked for something, and he couldn't talk anymore because his whole mouth didn't work properly. So he tried to write something down, and I just, like, I look at it sometimes. I'll come across it in all my paperwork in the office, and I'll just start crying because I'm like, what was he trying to say, you know? Whereas, like, these guys have these recordings when Pat was perfectly capable, young, and, like, engaged in this craft. And they have this, like, it's kind of like a primo snapshot I wish I had that experience. Like, I wish somebody was like, hey, we have all these tapes of your dad playing music. Do you want to hear them? I would be, I would be like, the greatest gift I could probably ever get. Watching the world pass you by Wondering why you never will try to let go Of the dreams that you hold the story's been told, you're out in the cold, come again. Once in a while there's a change, reason to smile, come again. Nothing much more than a friend. Thinking about you and Crosses my mind that you were the kind of girl who could make her own mind. Reason to find the thoughts left behind come again. That Doc was produced by Jessa Runciman with Veronica Simmons. It was edited by me, A.C. Rowe. The music you heard in that story was by Jonas Benetta and, of course, Pat Maloney. If you want to hear more of Pat's music, you can. Joanne hasn't made it possible to download it yet. She's still not sure quite what to do with it. But you can stream the songs from this episode on our website. We're at cbc.ca slash docproject. There you will also find photos of Pat in the 1970s playing his flute and photos of Jonas's setup with Pat's tapes. Again, that's all at cbc.ca slash docproject. Coming up after the break, the story of another dad who left a record. What if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or 
even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. In 1950, Tibet was invaded by China, leading many Tibetans to flee to India. Searing Wang Kong was one of them. He was just a kid at the time, 13 years old. And in 1970, from India, Searing came to Canada. Actually, he was one of the first Tibetan refugees to come to Canada. It was a tie between him and another guy, Jampa Dorji. Searing settled in Belleville, Ontario got a job at the Batashu Company. There are now almost 5,000 Tibetans living in Canada, most of them in Parkdale, or Little Tibet, a neighborhood in Toronto. And a lot of them have Searing to thank. He was a leader in Canada's Tibetan community before passing away in 2000. His son, Rignam Wangkong, was 10 years old when his dad died. He doesn't have many memories of him. Like, he doesn't remember the sound of his voice or how he laughed. But he has something else, an unfinished memoir that his father wrote before passing away, documenting his harrowing journey as he fled Tibet. It's a memoir that Rignam never read until he set out to tell the story you're about to hear. This doc was originally broadcast back in 2017. Here's Rignam. On a train to Pickering, Ontario, to pick up the memoir which my father, the late Tsering Wong Kong, or in Tibetan we call them Bala, so my Bala, has left his memoir with my cousin Dase Wong Kong. She's the eldest in our family, and he entrusted her with the memoir because they had such a close relationship. And I've never actually read this memoir before. And he passed away in 2000 to lung cancer. And I think there's a subconscious reason for why I didn't, why I didn't want to read the memoir. It would be too much for me to handle, especially as a young teenager. Now that I'm 27 years old, I feel I'm at a better stage in my life and maybe I've processed the death better. But, um, I don't know, I don't, they say time heals all, but uh, I'm still not over the passing of my father. I don't think I ever will be. It's something that will stay with me forever. What I'm feeling and what I'm thinking right now is just nervousness, uh, excitement, and just a sense of... Scarborough's is stopped, Scarborough. Sense of wonder really curious as to what is written in there I, and I don't know too much of it I only know the vague details of his journey and his life and this is going to be a chance for me to really get to know what my father was thinking Pickering's our next stop Pickering next my heart is beating so fast right now I'm pretty nervous to finally have the memoir in my hands I heard it's handwritten. I don't remember what his writing looked like, so I'll be able to witness that again for the first time. We discover the struggle that he had faced in his life. 
so here we are in Pickering. So it's been a while, right? Yeah. So this is what your Paula gave me. Yeah. Um, I think it was something he was working on that I think it was a recent thing and I don't remember exactly what month he gave it to me but it was some time before he went into you know when he was really sick mm -hmm. so um, it's not completed but it's just a document um, mm -hmm. kind of autobiography he was trying to do but I just remember him handing it over to me and asking me, you know, will you take care of this? Will you type this up? Um, there wasn't anything formal about it, but just I knew it was something important to take care of. And receiving this was kind of, in my mind, like I think I was 18 or so at the time, um, just kind of a signal that his time, or at least he was thinking that it was coming closer to the end. Um, it was emotional. It's, I'm going to be honest. Like he, your Bella was like a second father to me. He was very influential in my life. Thank you. It's really, yeah, really powerful to f actually have it in my hands, honestly. Yeah, I know. It's really, it's quite messy. I mean, I can see that why my writing is messy too. You know, I get that from him. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, thank you so much. My father, Lobsan Wangdi, and mother, Pasan Lamu, had nine children, eight boys, and one girl. I was the eldest. Wangkan family had quite a big farm and domestic animals like cows. That's my father's youngest brother reading the memoir. From the opening, I'm thrust into Tibet of the 1950s. My father was still a boy at the time, living on a big farm in the village of Namda. The farm had all kinds of domestic animals, like yaks, oxes, and cows. The Wonkong family was the wealthiest in the village. They lived a simple farming life interconnected with traditional Buddhist practice. Some family members became monks and nuns. By the end of 1958, the Chinese were cracking down more and more. They began forcing Tibetan officials and landowners into detention centers for so-called re-education. They had something called public struggle sessions, where many Tibetans were labeled anti-revolutionary and beaten until they couldn't get up. My Paula writes that it was only a matter of days until my grandfather would be arrested. The family had to consider escaping to India. One evening, Auntie Puri's husband came to us and told us a few families from a nearby town are going to escape that night, and they too were leaving with them. Bala saw this is the only chance to escape, so we decided to leave that night. 
I was told about their plan, but rest of children were not told, fearing that they may say something to neighbors' children. My uncle, Yishi Kedup, and my aunt, Yishi Wangmo, were two of those other children. They were only kids at the time, but they still remember the escape well. But then that night, they won't let me go play outside. Ah, no, no, no. Usually they, they let me go outside. They won't let me go. Don't go outside. I said, I was wondering. They're talking in the home and then they stop when I come in because they think I have a big mouth. I might tell outside, we escaping tonight, you know. So that night we escaped. Only thing is why we do is because nighttime there's watchmen go around in our town. There's a lot of trucks, Chinese trucks driving by. And my dad was really scared, but I didn't know what he was scared about, you know. And he was trying to get rid of a lot of the documents. I remember that well. And then my mom going in and out of the room, they were kind of whispering, but we didn't really know what was really happening. One of our um, mom's cousin came over to tell us that they have to leave. Otherwise, uh, my father and my oldest brother, Sri Wanga, is going to be uh, taken away by the Chinese. So kind of really suddenly, I think we left in the middle of the night. My Paula writes that his father carried one of his younger brothers. His mother carried another one on her back. His sister, who we just heard, could barely walk, so the aunts carried her. His brother, who we also heard, was able to walk, but he couldn't carry anything. So my Paula carried some valuables in a small backpack. His two aunts were at the nunnery and would meet them on the way. I remember all the kids all get bundled up and uh, we left our house and start walking in the ditch. With, uh, in the being winter time, there was no water, so we ran out in the middle of the night. During the winter time, water channels are dry. So soon as we got out of back door, we ran towards water channel and walked through it to avoid watchmen seeing us. About two miles away from our home, a dog was running after us. Pala said, oh my goodness, those watchmen must have sent the dog. And when the dog reached us, we found it was our own dog. We always keep him tied with chain, but somehow he got loose. And my father trying to push him back and because he's going to bark and all these things. No, couldn't do it. Keeps coming. We tried to send him back, fearing that he may bark on the way. He wouldn't go back. We went through a number of towns, but he never barked at all. Never barks. Comes with us quietly. After this false alarm, my Bala writes how the family continued to walk well into the night. They were all exhausted. Along the way, they were meeting more and more Tibetans fleeing the Chinese. Finally, around midnight, they met up with other family. Luckily, my Bala's aunt was able to escape with their donkeys carrying food. Someone suggested to throw away some of that food to allow the donkeys to carry their belongings as well as the very young children. My father writes about how relieved he was to shed his load. But this move would come at a high price. We walked all night. When daylight came, all we could see was snow, rocky mountain, and it was freezing cold. At that time, they found out one of Pala's sister's daughter on donkey was dead from suffocation. They had placed two babies, a girl and a boy, in sleeping bags on the side of the donkey. Somehow during the night, the little girl was smothered by the bag. And uh, I didn't even know a few days later what happened to her, and then they told us that's what happened to her. And I said, what happened to her body? And they said, uh, they 
put a big pile of rocks and left it there because they couldn't do anything else. By the second day, there were more than a hundred people in their group. The others had been able to bring yaks, donkeys, cows, clothes, and food. His family were the only ones who didn't have food or bedding. My Bala writes how navigating through the mountains felt like sleepwalking. They were drifting in and out of consciousness, and no one knew which way to go. It was while he was in this state of semi-consciousness that my Bala became separated the group. Sometime during the night I must have slept and when I woke up there was no one around me. I screamed calling Pala and Amla but could not hear any sound other than wind blowing. I walked all night and when sun came up I was on top of a rocky mountain. No matter what direction I looked all I could see were snowy mountains. I was completely lost. I did not know how to go back home, even if I wanted to. I was exhausted by this time, so I sat there for a while and looked around for any sign of road or people. All of a sudden, a crow showed up and flew around and around over my head. So he remembered hearing uh, old tales that sometimes crows and birds, they'll show you your, your root, you know. In Tibet, we have a lot of suspicious of kind of these things. He thought, oh, maybe this crawl is showing me the direction. After a while, he took off. So I went in the direction the crow had flown. And crow flies and lands and then walking like, you know, making sounds and walking. So he kept following his his crow and he crow would fly away and then he wait for him and then keep flying. After about 15 minutes walk, I could see a person walking towards me. He saw our dad coming towards him and that's how they met. When we met, Bala did not know what to do. He was very happy and at the same time angry with me for not sticking with the group. I got frostbite on my ears, lips, nose, fingers. And that morning I saw him. His face was like swelling, eyes almost closing. We cold, right? They thought he's dead because if he stay in one spot, he'll be frozen to death, right? What happens is my father's got thick clothes. He keep walking all night long. That's why he survived. That's what they said. But his face was all swelling like like this. We moved on, walked the rest of the day and the night. By next morning. We reached the bottom of the pass that we are supposed to cross to Bhutan. All of a sudden, some people on horseback were following us. All the men stayed back. Women and children were told to go towards the pass. I decided to stay back with men to fight. But Pala said, you are not in condition to fight and must go with women and children. That was a frightening moment and then I remember how Bad road. There was no roads. You just walk in the snow to your knees, and everybody was cold and hungry, and 
you, my aunt and a lot of other people had frostbites on their nose and their toes. Fortunately, horsemen went back and we have been able to reach the pass by midday. Now we were on Budna's side and we started to descend. We camped overnight at a valley. When we got in Bhutan, I think everybody was really, really happy because uh, you don't have to worry about Chinese, anything like that. You are free. After three days of walking, our family had finally escaped from Tibet. My Bala describes how they were so relieved to be free from the Chinese. But fleeing Tibet was not the end of their troubles. Bala writes about their struggles in Bhutan. Everyone was hungry, especially the younger children. No one had eaten. Their parents had brought all the silver and gold they could carry. But when they tried to sell it to nomads, they realized it was worthless. So many other Tibetans had come through the area, selling their silver and gold, it had lost all value. But by chance, they did have one thing of value to the nomads. The family dog. The same one who had broken free to follow the family from Namda. When the nomads saw our dog, they wanted the dog the most. So Pala sold him for some rice. I felt so bad. But people told me India would be too hot for him. It would be best for him to stay here with the nomads because they would take real good care of him. So they had to tie the dog there because the dog won't let the Buddhist people go near, right? They had to tie with the two chains there. Dog was crying. My Bala writes about how sad he was from selling his dog, but also how grateful he was because the family's first warm meal of rice soup was because of the dog. And that would prove to be really important because of how long it would take to cross Bhutan. It took us over a month by walk to reach the Indian border. We had to walk certain distance per day with the Bhutanese army and we had no help from any government or organization. We backed and sold all the valuable things we could bring with us to feed the family. After a few days in Buxar, we were put in truck and were taken to a railway station. It was first time for us to see real Indian people, train and big city where there were so many people's cars and trucks. We were overwhelmed and felt a sense of loss because everything was new to us. This was the first time they experienced electricity. Many of them were amazed that even though it was nighttime outside, it would be daylight inside the train station. After two nights and days journey by train, we reached a place called Misamari. I would call it Death Camp. This is the place Indian government set up camp for Tibetan refugees. Worst of all, the weather was too hot and parents began to worry for our health. After two to three months' time, we were told that we would be leaving for a place called Bomdela. We didn't know how to adjust. Living conditions were very, very bad. Three of our younger brothers died. I remember my... My younger brother, who was, I think it was about three years old. When I see the people in Africa, all 
skin and bone. That's I, every time I see that, I remember my brother. He would cry, but he had no sound to cry. He would just like a, I don't know. He would make little sounds, and I still see his face today. My Bala's memoir ends while the family is still in India. They had moved from Bomdila because the Chinese had attempted to invade the area. Meanwhile, my Bala was working in construction jobs to help feed the family. But what he wanted most of all was to go to school and learn English. My Bala was a tall boy, and because Tibetan schools admitted students based on height, he was too big to attend. But he was determined to get an education, and eventually, he did. In his memoir, My Bala describes the day he's accepted into school as the happiest day of his life. He continued to value education his whole life, from India to his eventual resettlement in 1970 as one of the first two Tibetan refugees in Canada. He was always for learning and very much against TV. Like if I, there, I think there's a video of our home video where I want to watch Sesame Street and he's just kind of scowling at me. <laughs> this is my cousin Dase again. I think that uh, I just gravitated towards him. I was very close to him. He was very gentle and calm. And my vivid memories are like the summer times, just coming over to your house opening your door, which is always unlocked, um, seeing your bala in the kitchen or in the backyard. Um, Ogla was always about health food, healthy eating. And I remember his vegetable garden, he'd always be growing tomatoes. And I would go for walks with him at night around the neighborhood, just short little walks. I remember one of those nights we were walking and he was telling me something. He told me he had a dream. He was like, um, I dreamt that uh, I was in this dark place. He was lying on his side, naked, covered in wax or something, and there was a, someone putting the wax onto his body. The person was saying, don't worry, it's okay. And he said he felt really warm, I think. He was saying that it was a monk. The monk was taking this wax and rebuilding him. But I remember him being like not scared of it, that dream. And I remember him stopping during the walk and just kind of looking up in the night sky, telling me this. And I was just like, that sense of something was coming, you know. Anyways. Thank you for sharing that. I can't imagine that because I didn't, I don't really remember much. That's my problem. Yeah, I know. I and like, you're lucky to be able to, yeah. to have those moments, I think. And to be able to speak with him and walk with him, like I wasn't able to do that. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. We're so fortunate to be able to actually hear him in his own words. That he was thoughtful enough to have written down for us, his children, 
his relatives. Yeah, I know. I feel very lucky to be able to read this. And, you know, it was hard for me to even talk about his death for so long, for even now, you know. And for me, it was pushing it away and denying that it happened and kind of blocking it. So I think I feel like this is like almost like uh, an acceptance as well, being able to explore what happened and then kind of tell the story and and then look forward. Yeah. Reading my Paula's memoir has been an immensely healing journey for me. Discovering his story and his struggle has opened my eyes to the suffering that he has faced and the hardships that our family has been through. Where my memory used to be completely blank and empty, now it's filled with vivid pictures of his struggle and his escape from Tibet. And I'm so grateful for having this memoir and for having the stories that have made our family and my father who they are. And I'm so proud to be his son. Duck was produced by Rignam Wong Kong and edited by Allison Cook. It was originally broadcast in April of 2017. All of the music in this story is courtesy of Tenzin Chagall. You can find a link to his music on our website. We're at cbc.ca slash docproject. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Veronica Simmons, Allison Cook, Sherry O'KK, Tanera McLean, and me, Althea Manassan is our digital producer, with backup this week from Emily Cannell. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren, and our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.